Genesis chapter 34, we're, we're going to be in 35, but Genesis chapter 34 is that great, horrific account of Jacob actually, actually rebelling against God. And rather than going to Bethel, uh, he went to Shechem. And uh, being in Shechem, uh, there uh, his daughter was uh, raped, and his two sons, Simeon and Levi, they all as a family uh, made the agreement with the men of Shechem that if the men of Shechem were all circumcised, then they would allow uh, for um, their uh, daughter, their sister to be buried, and that they would then intermarry with uh, the people of Shechem and become one people. It was all a lie. Uh, they waited until the men uh, were all uh, incapacitated from having been circumcised, and then Simeon and Levi went in and killed all of the men from the community. It was a total massacre. It was a complete failure uh, on every level uh, for this family. Uh, the uh, departure from God's will, the travel and settlement in Shechem, the deception of the people, the murder of an entire tribe, it, it's a huge disgrace to the family of God. And now all of the surrounding Tribes and communities hate them and fear them also. They've become this despised people because of this conduct. And so when we move into chapter 35, all of that has just transpired. When we hear in verse 1, Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. So this whole incident, as we said, with Shechem was because of Jacob's rebellion. He did not do as the Lord had asked him and go to Bethel. He went to Shechem and instead. And, you know, the example obviously is we, we often think that our disobedience to God is so minor that it's going to be inconsequential. And in the end, you know, a small thing, they're back in the land. Uh, they're just not in the exact location God had called them to be. So they're going to go to, uh, you know, Shechem rather than Bethel. What's the big deal? The big deal is they end up being completely in rebellion to God. And uh, so this worldliness, this rebellion against God, all of this nonsense that's gone on, you know, the best cure for worldliness is to separate from it. You know, uh, Jacob needed to leave Shechem uh, to go to Bethel and be done with all of that behavior. Um, you know, it's interesting to note that in Genesis 34, there's not one single mention of God. So for all of that great... Failure that you see there, you, know, you, you hear God say to Jacob, go back to the land, go to Bethel. You enter chapter 34, he goes to Shechem, and God is not mentioned one time. All you get to see is the great immorality of these people. It's, it's when they turn their hearts back to God that you begin to hear the name, the voice, and the interaction with God again. And again, the Lord is saying, you know, go and make this alter uh, to me once you return into the land as parents uh, when we're corrected by the lord uh, the greatest thing we can do is admit it and turn back to the lord when when we have done things that have been a poor example to our children to just own that to admit it to to stand right up and say you know, we're, we're making this change as a family because it was not the will of the Lord. And, and now we're going to do the will of the Lord in our lives. They may continue to have their own struggles, which certainly this family does. But that open admission is the greatest point of leadership that Jacob has had in his family up until this point. So I'm sure when Jacob looked back, at his first encounter with the Lord at Bethel, it was a high point in his life. 
as he was leaving his parents and Esau's threat was on his life and he was you know departing out to go to his uncle Laban's and that would eventually mean you know his finding his wife and his family and experiencing all that the Lord desired that moment in Bethel where he first met God everything else seemingly has been a struggle and a low point and now he's returning to that place of the first high point and many of us probably know what that's like where there was a moment in time or you know a high period in our life of being close to the Lord and we can look back and think oh you know that was truly you know memorable time memorable work memorable relationship with the Lord and you hear the voice of the Lord calling you back not necessarily geographically but back to that relationship the heart sort of leaps at the opportunity that the mind longs for that fulfillment this is late in his life that he's now returning to the Lord in this way my encouragement with that is you know no matter where we are right because sometimes we can do that <laughs> so much water's passed under the bridge i mean you know what's the point now there's a great work and a great testimony in Jacob's life from this point forward in following in obedience to the Lord for him to not just relegate well I had this wonderful relationship with the Lord but look at all the mess that has followed does it really make any difference for me to turn now and begin to try to live an obedient life to the Lord it very much does this man surrenders himself and begins to follow in verse 2 it says Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Let, uh, then let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands. And the earrings which were in their ears. Jacob hid them, or literally buried them, under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem. Good place to leave the worldly objects in the worldly location of rebellion. Just depart from it, bury it, be done with it, move on. You know, I've read some commentators that thought, you know, maybe he should have destroyed these idols. Maybe he should have gone through greater effort. Look, if you just bury them in the place that they belong, leave the dead with the dead, and just move on. That's a perfectly fine thing to do. Just depart from them, leave them behind. Experience what the Lord you know, wants in your life. <coughs> Jacob's family only gets right with the Lord when Jacob gets right with the Lord. You know, it's uh, interesting how much we affect other people. Consider, you know, what the Lord might be calling you to do as leaders of our families. If we resist God or we submit to God, we'll see the effects in our family. So much better to see our family affected by our submission to the Lord. Some of that ends up being, you know, long term in either case. You know, so if you have said, well, I'm you know, submitting my life to the Lord, but I don't see the effects in my family that I'm wanting to see, give it time. You know, the, the laws of sowing and reaping, and they are physical and spiritual laws, right? You plant the seed in the ground, you don't go out the next day and there's the tree, right? Hooray. Let's just harvest and build a house. It doesn't work that way. There's time before the harvest. You have to plant, and you have to let the thing grow. And, and so we stand, and the world examines us, and we live, and our families watch and look for the reaction. If you think about where they're at, that verse 4 is remarkable to me. You know, So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which are in their hands away. I thought these were worshipers of you know, Jehovah. I thought these were worshipers of Yahweh. Why are all these idols in their household? Well, if you rewind the thing, 
you go back to Genesis 31:19, and as they're departing from Laban, it says Rachel had stolen the household idols which were in her father's house. She took all of the idols from her own home. You, you think, well, well, that was just what she had. Yeah, well, what did she just encourage the rest of her family to do? So all along the way, are they collecting idols based upon what they've seen other people have in their own life? It's, again, remarkable how we affect our families. <laughs> Statement. Very old, very true. No matter how hard we try to teach our children godly conduct, they still do what we do. We think there's going to be a different effect. In the end, they're doing exactly what they're seeing. You know, changing the garments. Uh, in Jude chapter 1, being only one chapter, verse 23 it says, others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments defiled by the flesh. What do you mean? Uh, there's, there's Christian clothes and non-Christian clothes? Well, I mean, yes and no. You know, I'm not trying to preach some weird thing about you know, the style of what you're wearing. But you know, it's hard to share the Lord with somebody when you've got your Budweiser t-shirt on. You know? I've seen people attempt it. It really nullifies your message. It creates confusion in people's hearts and minds. You know, there are certain things that clearly belong to the world. And you can certainly get into the discussions of modesty. This, this culture very much so had a whole attire that said you were of certain gods and of certain pagan forms of worship. You know, people could look at you and say, oh, you're a worshiper of, you know, whatever God, Molech or this or that. You're a worshiper of Bacchus. You had certain things in your apparel that portrayed to the world what you were worshiping as a God. And, you know, you can sometimes even see that in the way people dress today. I think the greater picture, the larger picture, has to do with that idea of, you know, as a person, you know, can it be seen in us that the joy of the Lord is upon us? That our relationship with Christ shines through us? Or is it that we are troubled with the flesh and pulled down with the worldliness of our own sin? You know, the changing of our garments, the changing of our demeanor. A great passage in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 22 says that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and then you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness putting off the old man and putting on the new man. You know, Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, For as many as you were, were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. I mean, could you, you know, honestly say years ago in the way that we lived and dressed and walked and talked, somebody saw us in our completely sinful state, would they look upon you and think, Christ? When they look upon us now... Is there something that attracts them and automatically? I, I think you've probably met people along the way where there was just something about their demeanor, that, especially as a Christian. You know, there's been a number of times I've asked people, hey, I gotta ask you, are you a Christian? Every time. I mean, there's been a few times I thought that and didn't ask, but every time I've had the gumption, which has been several times, to ask, they've told me, yeah, absolutely. And we break right into I don't know them from a hole in the wall. Something about their appearance, their demeanor, their person. And they aren't like a mild Christian. You know, you ask them that and they light right up like, hey, somebody wants to talk to me about Jesus. <laughs> They're excited about it. It's shining through them. It is part of their person. You can see it in them when you begin to talk. There's just certain responses. You know, that, that's the new man. And what a wonderful thing that it can be seen that clearly. You know, some people aren't looking for it. 
They're not attuned to it at all. But this idea of putting off your garments, putting on your new garments, it certainly has far more to do with that being clothed in Christ than it has to do with, you know, what kind of shirt you're wearing. The need to be clothed within him. This thing of the earrings, again, uh, still to do with the pagan symbols of their day. There's a thin line. I always look for all the neat little nuance. Um, you might have your heart and mind flash forward to once the nation of Israel is leaving out of Egypt, and then Aaron asks for the earrings, and they make the golden calf from that. So, you know, the pagan things emerging from the pagan things. And here they're asked to surrender, and they do so. It's a wise idea to get rid of anything that is, you know, pagan or occultic in our home and our lives and, you know, our surroundings. There, there are so many subtleties in our environment, in our world. It's permeated so many different aspects of our lives. I'm amazed at the libraries of, uh, you know, Christians. You, know, you go in and you know, all this like new age stuff and, you know, meditation stuff and just weird things that don't have anything to do with Christ at all. You know, psychology and all this. Oh, why is this here? You know, pretty much you got the one book that needs to be there and everything else. Could, you know, even the Christian stuff is needs to be subsequent to the Word of God. So, cleansing our lives. Verse 5. They journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So, Jacob came to Luz, and that is Bethel, which is the land of Canaan, and, he, and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. So the terror of God being upon the cities, God would have been justified uh, to leave Jacob and his family to the consequences of their sin. They had murdered an entire tribe of people. And for the surrounding tribes to have banded together and attacked uh, the family of Jacob would have been a completely natural response. And God would have been justified in saying, you're going to get what you deserve in this moment. And rather, it seems by the way this is worded, that God actually influenced their, their hearts with fear. So that the surrounding tribes had this sense of you know, God being in the midst and there being a terror or, you know, a fear over Jacob and his family so that they left them alone. That's only God's grace that they're given this protection from the hearts and minds of the people. So this altar that he builds, uh, El Bethel, uh, you know, the house of the strong God is you know, sort of its meaning. And now that Jacob is getting right with God, even though the Canaanites and the Perizzites in the area are a danger to him. He obeys God and worships him. You know, the uh, sort of natural thought might be to flee, to you know, look for another area rather than be here where there's a potential threat uh, to him and his family. He instead goes exactly where the Lord is calling to him to, and he establishes himself in worship. There's a vulnerability in that. The people are seeing that he is establishing himself here, and you know if they if they're thinking, well, you know he's just going to move on. He's going to come here and he's going to move on, and we won't have to deal with him. He was a threat uh, to Shechem, but he's not going to remain in the area. The fact that he's establishing himself causes it to be that the people in the surrounding area have to process what are we going to do about this man, and yet he remains there. He has to let his trust in God overcome whatever fears might be in his heart, which he's expressed, right? This isn't just speculation. He had said to his sons, you've made me an abomination amongst these people. You know, they, they now consider us obnoxious as a family. And so, you know, the idea 
is you know established in the scripture that you know, he's there and there's a threat over his head, and yet he's worshiping the Lord in obedience. In verse 8, it says, uh, Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree. So the name of it is called Alon Bacchus, or Oak of Weeping. So uh, Rebekah's nurse, uh, you know, passing away, it seems she came with Rebekah as a companion when she came from Haran to marry Isaac. Um, if you look at Genesis 24, verse 61, it says, Then Rebekah and her maids rose, and they rode on the camels and followed the men. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. So clearly she was very loved by the family as they named the place where she was buried, Oak of Weeping. You know, this whole picture for Jacob, as difficult as all of this is, the recognition that it's way more dangerous uh, for him to disobey God than for him to live in obedience and remain here in obedience to God. The, you know, the concept, the overview, in, in time, as we progress through our relationship with the Lord, there, there is sort of an understanding that begins where God speaks to us. We read something in the Word, we hear something you know, that we're being taught, and we understand God's speaking to our heart. And in the process, we, we, we sort of wrestle with the concept, and then we make our own decision. And very often that doesn't have to do with what God has called us to do, like we just saw Jacob do. He's been doing that his whole life. You know, return to the land, go to Bethel, build an altar, worship me there. Go to the land, go to Shechem. You know, follow the Lord right up to the point where I'm not comfortable with it anymore. He's come to realize all every time he's done that, the outcome has been far worse. Far worse than simply saying, what is it the Lord's called me to do? And just to focus on that. Because, boy, the voices and the circumstances come, don't they? All of the things that start to flood in and point in other directions. I always think about Peter stepping out onto that water. You know, you see the Lord. Oh, what a glorious, magnificent thing. If you're the Lord calling me out, you know, steps out on the water. You know, what, what an absolute thrilling moment. I can't imagine the exhilaration of stepping out and the realization of I'm standing on water. And then, you know, the, put the quote brackets around the reality of standing on water, you know, sinks in, pun intended, and, uh, you know, down he goes. When we're focused on Christ then we rise. It's when our eyes look at the circumstances and listen to the voices of the wind. It literally records that, that the voices of the wind in his heart and in his mind and the sinking follows. It's a great thing to see. I, I so like Jacob, right? I mean, we get through Genesis and you come to, you know, an example like Joseph and you're sort of intimidated, like, look at this guy. He just goes through a living hell, and yet he loves the Lord and obeys the Lord and follows the Lord. And we kind of hang our heads because at every turn we would have been making the exact wrong choice, and he's making the exact right. I like Jacob because he's the guy who's so human. And yet what? The grace of God. God still works with him all along the way, and he's learning. And like I say, here he is late in life, right? Now I'll be 50 soon, and I'm just beginning to realize I don't have a clue. You know, if you'd asked me when I was 20, I would have told you the exact opposite, you know, or something like that. <laughs> I was fairly confident I knew everything, or at least, yeah, no, I knew everything. <laughs> Verse 9, then God appeared to Jacob again. Then he came to Padanaram and blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob. Your name shall 
not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Also, God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac I give to you, and your descendants after you I give you, or I give this land. And then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, and poured a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke to him Bethel. So again, this is this second appearing, and it seems that this a second appearing, again, was a physical one. Uh, we uh, sometimes refer to that as you know a theophany, where God uh, physically appears. I, I like the term that has been used by many scholars, a Christophany. Because uh, we see the scripture telling us no man has seen God at any time. But then we hear the scripture telling us that Jesus was the personification of God. He was God's revelation to us. He was God in the flesh. And so, you know, it's impossible to see God the Father, God the Spirit. Uh, but the Son has revealed them to us. So the thought is that this is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus, a Christophany, uh, where he came and spoke with him here. What a, an amazing blessing to experience uh, the presence of the Lord. And notice the correlation, right? It is in the obedience to the Lord that now the Lord appears to him. Uh, throughout this entire history of him struggling and wrestling with the Lord, uh, he's had this you know, distance and separation, and now this relationship of restoration. When he's finally in the place God told him to go, immediately the blessings are returning to him. And in particular, you know, you're going to be called Israel, governed by God. Rather than being known by his natural name, Jacob, which again, just to put it in you know, proper order means someone who comes from behind grabbing the heel of another and causing that person to stumble. The one who cause, causes others to stumble by grabbing their heel. You know, my, my wife gets such a kick out of that. She, she'll be walking behind you and like to come up behind you and tap your foot, you know, make you all... I, I like it because, you know, the scripture says, you know, the person who digs the hole will themselves fall into it. And she injures herself like 60% of the time in trying to do it to me. You know, to come up behind, stub her own toe and just whatever. But it just reminds me, you know, she's much more Israel. Don't get me wrong. She's truly a woman governed by God. But those little examples of a person who does that. And he's no longer going to be that person. Think about the great stumbling we where we've sort of intermingled with 34 and the tragedy of Shechem and this final hurdle. They're all coming over as a family to purify themselves and get rid of the idols and finally walk with the Lord properly. And and now the Lord is saying, you're no longer going to be called uh, Jacob. His name was changed some time ago, but now the Lord is coming to the point where, look, let's be done with the name Jacob. I've already changed your name. Let's stop calling you that. Think about how that might apply to us, right? We had that moment where we surrendered ourselves to the Lord. We gave in to the Lord. We prayed those prayers. We were fully committed. And yet, the stumbling, right? We were grabbing our own heel, weren't we? We were stumbling ourselves for how long? You know, there comes a point where the reality is so set in our mind of all we've been through that there's a the determination wells up of, I've got to find an obedience I've never had with the Lord before. And once that starts to come through, then you begin to hear the Lord, you know, say basically to our hearts and mind, okay, let, now let's act 
like the new person that we are. <laughs> let's, let's stop behaving like the old man. Let's stop being Jacob. Let's start being Israel. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Think about those positive affirmations right there. If anyone is in Christ. You know, that isn't the idea of maybe you are, maybe you're not. It's sense. You know, therefore, sense you are in Christ, right? And we can do that. You say to somebody, well, you know, I'm looking at, you're saying you're a Christian, but I'm looking at your conduct and I don't see Christianity here. And they'll, ins they'll insist, I am a Christian. You know, yes, I've got all this terrible sin in my life. And, but then we can say to them, sense, right? Rather than hanging the question mark over their head, you know, some pointing, condemning neon arrow pointing at them, you know, if you're a Christian, you know, since you are a Christian, you know, you're a new creation. The old things have. It's not that they're going to. They have passed away. This stuff doesn't belong to you anymore. This stuff all goes inside the coffin that goes with your dead man or woman, which was buried with Christ, Romans chapter 6, in baptism. That's, that all goes there. You can't go dredge in the lake after you know, the baptism looking for the old man and all of his junk. It's gone. It needs to be left and relegated there. And if you turn around and find the old man's stuff in your hands, you need to be freaked out. It needs to be like a horror movie. Like, you know, you got dead man's belongings in your hands. This isn't yours. You're a new creation. Since you are a new creation, behold, all things have become new. All things. Leave these things behind. Okay, Jacob. Have we cleared the hurdle? You know, right? And, and think about how dramatic this is, you guys. You're Jacob. You're a father. You've got all of these sons. And you wake up tomorrow morning and the entire village you're living in is dead. Murdered. And you turn around and realize it's your boys that have done it. And you're the one who brought them to this place. In rebellion to God. That is a tragic moment for any parent to have to come to. Really, really treacherous. I think every one of us has had experiences like that. Where we looked at decisions we were making as though they were minor and inconsequential. And when they blew up in our face, we were like, good Lord, what have I done to myself and everyone I love? Now that he's here, he's hearing clearly. I need to be Israel. I need to be done with this whole Jacob thing. This needs to be departed from my life. You know, return to your first love is what the Lord is calling him to, right? Bethel, that's where it began for him. God is saying, well, back to Bethel. Build the altar, worship me there. It's very reflective of Revelation chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, where Jesus speaking says, you've left your first love. And I need to pause right there because very often people preach that totally incorrect. It's not first numerically, okay? It's first in importance. It's the chiefest of loves. Your most significant love. You have left your most significant love love right and and therein is the thing we sometimes forsake our relationship with the lord because we don't have that sense of gravity about its value right? we we might have the idea of oh yeah i'm going to do this and i'm all excited about it here in the moment but then when the temptation comes we don't understand the gravity of what we're giving up the exchange we're making the gross in value right as we're trading away the most precious thing in our life for some disgusting, 
decomposing worldly thing. Christ is calling us to the eternal, and we instead embrace that what is rotten. You've left your first love. And then uh, notice these things. I know I've preached this many times. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. So the three points that I always uh, give out uh, within this, remember, repent, repeat. Remember, repent, repeat, right? Remember, verse 5, it's listed right there. Repent, also, do the first works. Repeat what you were doing in the beginning. Remember, repent, repeat. You've got to look back and say, where was I with, with the Lord? You know, in this case, he's, he's going back to the physical location, right? I mean, when I have had these reminders from the Lord, like it's not time for me to pack up and move back to New Hampshire. It's time for me to say, okay, what was I doing with the Lord? Remember those things. Repent. Turn the heart and the mind around. You know, metanoia. Go the opposite direction. So remembering and then turning around. And then doing it while you can't, like, rejoin that Bible study you were part of. And, you know, start doing, you know, the soup kitchen work you were back you know, 5, 10, 20 years ago, whatever it was. But you can reinstitute all of those things that were going on in your life. The remembrance of what you were doing, the rekindling of the fire in your life, letting the Lord work and change and bring you to where you need to be. He's remembering, going back to Bethel. He, he repents. He's gotten rid of the idols. And he does the first works by building an altar and worshiping God as he did before. So, <clears throat> as a uh, you know, second portion to this, God speaks about the land and the promises uh, that were given uh, to him. Uh, he's sort of third phase at this point. Abraham and Isaac previous to him, the land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I gave to you and your descendants after you, I give this land. This is a great reminder of Jacob's place in God's covenant that began with his grandfather, Abraham. Yeah, I, I like the way that you know, we can be reminded by the Lord uh, of what those promises were so long ago. I, uh, you know, I've shared many times my um, life's verse, you know, Philippians 1.6, Paul saying the church there at Philippi, you know, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work and you will be faithful to complete it even unto the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. When I first learned that verse and, you know, its depth of meaning for me, I was, you know, struggling with, I just got out of jail and I'm just starting to build this family and I'm trying to, you know, quit drugs and, or I had quit drugs, but I'm still wrestling with those desires and, you know, I, I was, you know, going back and forth between, you know, smoking cigarettes and not smoking cigarettes. And I get mad at people at work and curse and swear. I just, as a young Christian, I was so discouraged because, you know, you, you've surrendered your life to Christ and, you know, you're in church and you're singing songs and you're around Christians and you're doing wonderful and then you're tested and you just fall apart. And uh, Gary Bowden, such a great pastor, what a wonderful brother, just spending every Wednesday afternoon with me. And pouring over that, just asking, I'd be, you know, crying and whining about, you know, I'm just such a failure. Why do I keep doing this stuff? And he'd say, you know, well, who began this work in you? And I'd say, well, the Lord did. So it wasn't you? No, it wasn't me. So who's going to continue to do this work in you? Is it going to be you or is it going to be the Lord? Okay, so it's not you? No. So who's going to complete the work? Well. It's going to be the Lord. So it's not going to be you? No. It's going to be the Lord? Yeah. You know, and I'd show up next week. I'm just so dense. And I'd start whining and crying again. And he'd just listen very patiently and then say, so tell me, Will, who began this work in your life? And we'd go through that all again. But it ingrained in me, one, that verse, and two, the understanding that I'm going to have struggles, but it's Christ that's doing this work 
you know, 30 years later, here I am. And, you know, you sort of lose touch with some of that early day stuff. But, but then as you're getting crushed in certain circumstances and you start you know, saying to God, like, what is going on? And he, his voice says, well, who began this good work in you? And everything just sort of comes back to life. The Lord's work and the way that he reminds us. You know, Jacob, you get a great promise on your life. You're now standing in the land that I promised to your grandfather. You know, that's a wonderful thing that the Lord does for him and for us. So, you know, then God went up from him, as we said. That's a, you know, a Christophany there. It's hard for us to know what kind of blessings uh, we are keeping ourselves from when we don't live in obedience, you guys. When we are walking in our own strength, and it's a weird thing because we're walking in our faith, right? But we're walking in our own strength. It's not until you come to the place of surrender that you really begin to recognize the great blessing and the presence of the Lord. You know, that realization, right? Remember how when we read that first occasion that he's coming out and in, in he's in Bethel and there he's calling out to the Lord and then he stops and he builds that little altar there and says, surely I did not know that the Lord was in this place. He's, he's very focused on the geography. This is God's house right here. I didn't even know it. What he doesn't realize is that when he walks away from Bethel and goes to Laban and then wanders through life and then he's off in Shechem, God's with him the whole way. The blessing that he keeps distancing himself from is his disobedience. It, that he's expelling the blessing out of his own life through his own disobedience. It's when he comes to the place of surrender that he experiences it. This pouring out of the drink offering that he does right here, oil, representative of the, the richness of life. Not everyone had it. Wine, symbolizing uh, a pleasure of self-indulgence. Uh, now that Jacob has redirected himself to the Lord, his love for the Lord causes him to automatically worship the Lord in sacrifice. Just give up luxuries. Give up things that are a blessing to the Lord. This idea of the drink offering is found often in the Bible. For the note takers, a few locations, Exodus 29, verses 40 and 41, Leviticus 23, 13, and Numbers 15, 5 through 7, a show drink offering was made with wine poured out on sacrifices to the Lord at the altar. Uh, Paul considered the pouring out of his life to the Lord as a drink offering. Uh, he said in Philippians 2.17 and also 2 Timothy 4.6, Yes, I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul looked at the pouring out of his life literally in death as an offering that was made to the Lord. And something uh, that you know, commentators have made note of is that the drink offering uh, was, uh, you know, oil and wine, always wine, sometimes wine and oil would be poured onto a uh, thin metal basin. And uh, as the offering was on the altar on fire, they would uh, take the basin up and roll the whole thing into the uh, fire all at once so it would just flare off immediately there'd be a huge burst of flame and display you know paul talking about this drink offering and his life being given to the lord that way you know what a picture that our life should be laid out very thin and ready for service to the lord and then just cast upon it to be an eye-catching display of bursting flame for the whole world to see. You know, as long as our lives may be, uh, may they catch people's attention to the Lord and the sacrifice that is made. So there's been a lot of pain 
and a lot of loss in Jacob's life, it would be easy for him to be bitter and angry. Instead, Jacob's heart of worship shows gratitude towards God. It, it's very easy to become cynical. Okay? Life is a bitter pill. And it's very easy to just fall into that, to to take that and, and that old adage that bitterness is the only poison that we consume, expecting it to kill our enemies. It's self-destructive. Jacob has come to that place of worship that all of that bitterness just departs. I mean, if you think about, you know, he's got a few key people in his life he can point back to focus on and say those people right there oh lord get them you know go get laban you know make sure that esau gets his due he could be focused on those he's not he's a broken man and he's very worshipful in his conduct unfortunately in verse 16 it says then they journeyed from bethel and when they were about a little distance from ephrath rachel labored in childbirth and she had hard labor. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear. Uh, you shall have this son also. And there's perhaps an insight. You know, these midwives very often very skilled and very accustomed to what they were experiencing. She only gives assurance that the child is going to survive. So here, you, know, you will have this child also, so <clears throat> everyone seems to have grown quite a bit spiritually now that they're living in God's will and in the land. You notice there's not any real competition seen here with the previous childbirths. There, you know, Rachel and Leah are really at one another, and there's a lot of contention. None of that seems to be displayed here. Of course, uh, there may have been very strong concern over Rachel's health at this point also. So it's possible that this last child was conceived in this place where Jacob came back to his first love to the Lord. That's a sideline note also that you know that he's finally in obedience to the Lord, the conception and birth of the child occurring here. Verse 18, so it was. As her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Onai, which means son of my sorrow. But his father called him Benjamin, son of my right hand. Very gracious thing that uh, Benjamin, uh, that, uh, <coughs> excuse me, Jacob does in uh, changing his name, you know. Uh, Rachel, in departing from this world, you know, the great joy that, you know, she might have had in Benjamin, she's recognizing it as, you know, she's going to lose that son and lose that opportunity. And so, son of her sorrow, uh, here, son of my right hand, uh, you know, it's associated with strength and honor. Uh, most people were right-handed, and Benjamin... Son of my right hand, therefore the idea of son of my strength or son of my honor is what's being said there. Um, Psalm 16, verse 8 says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Because God is at my right hand, I will not be moved. That you know, external position of power. Uh, Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, the position of strength and honor. Colossians chapter 3 uh, verse 1 says, If then you were raised in Christ, seek those things which are above, which Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. You know, that position of authority, the right hand of the throne, the right hand of God, you know, Benjamin being at Jacob's right hand, especially for Benjamin to be arriving at this point in Jacob's life. And to be named the son of my right hand. You know, if if you were to go back and look at, we're going to see shortly the conduct, uh, you know, of uh, these other sons and the firstborn, which you would think would be the son of his right hand. 
and the failures, the incredible moral failures that take place. The progression of relationship Jacob has come through to come to the place where he's now saying of this son, this is the son of my strength. This is the son of my honor. Right here, a young man who is coming into his life right as he's fully surrendering his life to Christ. There's a sort of beautiful picture that's laid out there. Verse 19, so Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. So they regretted you know, the, some of the things I'm sure that they said along the way. You, you consider Jacob and his departure from Laban, and Rachel has stolen the idols from her father's household, and Jacob makes that proclamation, with whomever you find your gods, do not let him live in the presence of your brethren. Identify what I have of yours and take it with you. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. Now his wife is passing away. You know, the, the, the pronouncement of death upon his own wife without even knowing it. And now she's passing away. You know, God isn't fulfilling anything that he just said, but man, the things we say that are regrettable. You know, we, we, we don't understand. We're so quick to say things, you know, sometime. It's, a, it's an unfortunate thing. You can go further back to things that even Rachel herself said in her immaturity and her bitterness at her sister Leah in Genesis chapter 30, verse 1, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. And now she's giving birth and dying simultaneously. It's, it, you know, there's just so many regrettable things along the way that we don't even recognize in our flesh we're doing and we're saying. You know, I, I, one of my biggest regrets, you know, a number of years ago, I, uh, I was a youth pastor and, um, <clears throat> I was describing on one occasion, and I, you know, in my zeal as a youth pastor, my point in delivering to the young people who were listening was to describe to them how destructive my sin was. And I described this particular thing to a group, and I look up, and there is a glint in a few young men's eyes. I'm describing my sin, and all they're hearing is the sin. And I realized in the moment, oh, they're sucking that in way too deep. That's not a good thing. And I altered my behavior at that point as a youth pastor to not talk about those things in the way I had previously and to become much more generic about uh, those things. And years later uh, to realize my own nephew had uh, been one of those young men who heard that and he had actually gone and done those things himself. You know, just having heard, oh, the, oh, the regret, the regret, if I could take just that one thing back. The things that come out of our mouths, the idle words, it's, it's an unfortunate thing we sometimes do. But Jacob sets up this pillar, you know, coming to the Lord or returning to the Lord does not mean life is suddenly going to get easy. There are constant challenges to us trusting God. You know, you're now obedient, now trusting, now in a place you should be, and now your wife passes away. It's a heavy moment for him. You know, a lot of people want comfort and ease. That's what they're, they're not actually worshiping God. They're worshiping laziness. David Gusick is a great Bible commentator. He said, for some, comfort is our idol, a false god they worship with constant pursuit and attention. Some only want a comfortable life, not a godly life. The symbol for some Christians is a lazy boy recliner, not a cross. That's an unfortunate commentary on who we are as believers. 
35:21, Israel journeyed and pitched his tent toward the tower of Eber, and it happened when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went in and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Reuben went in and lay with Bilhah's his father's concubine. This is the last thing we should expect from the oldest son. You know, the sin against his father and his family this way. And as I said moments ago, at the same time, given how sinful this family has been, it's not at all surprising. I mean, you turn the page and read it, and you're like, my gosh. And then you think for half a second, you're like, well, I mean, really? Doesn't it make sense? that this is who these people are. It's an unfortunate commentary. So, again, Israel heard about it. <clears throat> Through their sin, Reuben, Simeon, Levi are disqualified from being the ones through whom the Messiah would come. It ends up being the fourth son, Judah. You know, one after another, right? The inheritance, the blessing is supposed to come to the eldest born, disqualified. He just disqualified himself right here. Simeon, Levi, killing all the men of Shechem, disqualified, disqualified. So it falls to Judah, who wasn't perfect, but the Lord extended his grace upon him. So eh, we're going to go anyway. Verse 22, now the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah were Reuben, uh, Jacob's Firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. And the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paden. Well, God has created this family and is going to use them in most profound ways. It's not because of how wonderful they are. It's because of his grace that he works in them at all. Verse 27 says, Then Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abram and Isaac had dwelt. Jacob has the opportunity to see his father this one last time before his death. Uh, there seems to be nothing dramatic between Isaac and Jacob at this point. There's no big you know, conversation or uh, confrontation, either one at this point, that may have been because of his age. He may have been completely incapacitated at this point, but he at least gets this last moment. Now, the days of Isaac uh, were 180 years. So Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days. His son Esau and Jacob buried him. That's actually a mournful and yet beautiful ending to that whole story. That these two brothers have come to a place of peacefulness. You know, Esau is still Esau. Uh, Jacob has been changed by the Lord and is now Israel. And the peacefulness between the two of them, and you know, much like Paul said, as much as it is up to you, live peaceably with all men, as much as you can. Live peaceably. Jacob has become a peacemaker. As much as he was a man who divided this family and created problems, he's now a peacemaker. And he's able to lay his father to rest with his brother, who you know, previously had said, the next time I see you, I'm going to kill you. And he had even said, you know, I'm going to wait until our father has passed away, and then I'm going to kill you. And now they're in a place where he can be in the presence of his brother and the peaceful passing of their father, and they can lay him to rest without any animosity between them because, because of Jacob's relationship with the Lord. It has little to do with Esau. It has almost everything to do with Jacob and the peace that he has in his relationship with God. May that be reflective of who we are as believers, the work of the Lord in our hearts and minds. Amen? Well, let's stand and we'll pray. Father God, we are so grateful for your word and the way that it unflinchingly shows us 
even the failures of human character. Lord, I pray that we would not be encouraged in our flesh, but be encouraged despite our flesh. And even though we could see these people's failures here, we would find it within ourselves to submit and follow you in obedience. Lord, work in our hearts and minds. Work in our lives. Accomplish the work that you want to. Help us to be in submission to you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.